Great to see you all this evening. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team. I was telling my five-year-old Hank what I was preaching about this week. This is like his favorite story, right? This is like his biggest dream. And we were talking especially about that part we just read about the stone sinking into his forehead. And he said, Dad, you better tell those people this is going to be harsh. This is going to be harsh. So uh, Hank, what do you know? Uh, this is going to be harsh tonight, uh, at least when you think about what happened to Goliath. It's interesting because if people have any exposure to Christianity at all, this is one of the stories that they know, right? Perhaps you've never been to church before and you've never heard of this, but my guess is m- most folks have heard at least of this story and have some sense of, of this story. And we'll hear this referred to uh, when there's different kind of uh, movies that happen or different moments, especially in sports, right? There's lots of different stories that have been told that are, are kind of David and Goliath type stories. I think about movies like Karate Kid, right? Where the underdog, right? Ro- movies like Rudy. Uh, think about the real life thing that happened that turned into a movie, which was The Miracle on Ice in 1980, the Team USA hockey team that had no chance to beat the Soviet Union. And then sure enough, they did. There's just all these incredible stories, and we're always told that these are, this is like a David and Goliath story. And so because of that, we think we know what David and Goliath is about. We go, oh yeah, I know what David and Goliath is about. That's about how, you know, God's rooting for the little guy. I know David and Goliath. Yeah, that's, that's about how God's on the side of the underdog. And I just want to ask, is that really what this is about? You go, well, Maybe. I don't know. What is it about? Well, that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to try to figure out what is this story actually about and, and really to look at and say, okay, but and what does this story teach us as the people of God about facing fear? Because that's what's going on, right? You have this army of Israel, all these people of God who are facing the most scary thing they can imagine and, and go, what do you do in the face of that? What do we do in the face of that? I know some of you, I I don't know others of you, but here's what I know about every single one of us. We're all facing some fears. There's uncertain future. A lot of it, I I talk to a lot of folks with grandkids and they say, oh my goodness, I just, I'm so nervous for my grandkids and the world they're growing up in. Right, those of us with children, you go, gosh, what's this going to be like for them going down, down the line? This, this world can feel kind of scary and kind of intimidating. And my goodness, it feels kind of expensive. And, and that leads you into all these economic fears. And what about inflation? What about this? And am I ever going to own a home? And da, 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 da. And you go down the line with that, right? I've got a teenager, a 16-year-old that just started driving, sent her off recently uh, with our stick shift, right? We have a stick shift car so that none of her friends can borrow it, is the idea with that. And uh, she's not great at it yet. And we were like, hey, you know what? Why don't you take that car? Uh, text us when you get there, right? That, talk about facing fear, right? That's so, so there's kind of silly stuff like that. Then there's serious stuff. Some of you have an appointment coming up with a physician, and you're not sure what it's going to be, or you kind of think you do know what it's going to be, and it's scary. I was talking to my dad just the other day. He just finished seven weeks of radiation and chemo for uh, tongue cancer. And this week, actually, since he finished the treatment, has actually been probably the hardest week of the whole thing because his throat is just, you know, burnt and torn apart. And he said to me, he goes, you know, Luke, if you're ever going to preach at some point about fear, and my ears perked up because I knew we were going to talk about this. He said, here's something you, I feel free to tell everybody. He said, I, he said, you know, my throat's so sore, it's so hard to swallow. And there's this one pill that I have to take every day. And I just hold it in my hand. And, uh, and for like five minutes, I can't take it. 
because when I take it, it feels like I'm trying to swallow a cotton ball with my throat all torn up like this, right? You can kind of picture that. He says, so I just stand there for about five minutes until finally I go, okay, Don, you got to do this, you know, and I pray and I take it. But every day I face that fear. Maybe some of you have a, have a pill like that of some sort. I mean, I'm not saying you actually are taking a pill, but whatever, what's your version of that? We have that. And so this story, I think, can inform it and can speak to it. So what we're going to do is work through 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you uh, can, please get a Bible either on your phone or grab one of the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you. I would love everyone to be able to have this because we're actually going to look and there's different points. We're going to say, look at this word, look at that. And I want you to be able to follow along. If you don't have a Bible in your lap, uh, I'm not going to make you. I can't make you, but you're just going to feel more lost than if you had one. So we have them there for you. And I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, Here's what we're going to look at tonight as we work through 1 Samuel 17. 17 is five smooth scenes and three giant takeaways. Five smooth scenes and three giant takeaways. Some of you know what I just did. All right, let's pray. Uh, God, we need your help. And we come to you tonight believing that you're a living God who desires to help your people. So would you teach us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm viewing this story in chapter 17 as a kind of movie or a, maybe a you know, longer TV show with five major scenes, five smooth scenes. Here's scene number one is introducing Goliath. We'll call this, in this corner, Goliath. We're introduced to Goliath, and it is a scary picture. We're told that the Philistines are gathered together. Uh, they're camped against the, the uh, army of Israel in the valley of Elah, and it says in verse 3, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. This valley of Elah, it's still there in Israel. If you ever go to Israel, like I've been to Israel, you can go there, you can see this. It's like, yep, the Philistines were there, the Israelites were there, here's the valley, here's the river, here's the stuff. You can see this, you can visit this. And so there's these armies lined up against each other. It says in verse 4, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. A, a cubit's about 18 inches, so this guy's massive. I mean, this is like, you know, Guinness Book of World Records level tall uh, from a you know, race of people that were very tall at the beginning of the world. Goliath of Gath was six cubits and a span. He had, look at this description of his armor, a helmet of bronze on his head, And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. So this is a, a big guy. He's huge, and he's a champion, and he's got all this armor. Let's unpack that for just a moment. This is not the first time that the people of Israel have faced a giant. Moses led the people out of Egypt. And they wandered a little bit as they were headed toward a promised land. And God had told them he was going to send them into a land flowing with milk and honey, a place of blessing and a place of abundance. And as they're preparing to go into that land, in Numbers chapter 13, you can read about how the Israelites sent some spies to go ahead and check out the land to see what was there. And they go and they check it out. And sure enough, it is amazing. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. There's amazing produce. It's just absolutely abundant. But there's a big problem. There's these really tall people there, these giants, they call them. And most of the spies say, you know what, it's an amazing place, we'd love to go there, but there's just no way, there's no way we can beat these people. Two of the spies say, yeah, maybe we can, let's, let's take a shot at it. 
And uh, rather than acting in faith, they withdraw in fear. They don't go into the promised land. Instead, they wander around the wilderness for 40 years until that generation, that faithless generation dies off and a new generation goes in. This isn't their first time with giants, and now they're facing a descendant of those same giants, Goliath. We're also told that Goliath was wearing, do you see it in verse 5, a coat of mail. Uh, In the Hebrew, you could translate that literally as a coat of scale armor, scales. It's the same word that's used to describe the skin of a reptile. Goliath's dressed like a giant serpent, which should get our attention. That's interesting. And he's a champion. This word champion literally means a man between. And he explains what is going on with that uh, title even in verse 8. It says, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine or are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. This is Goliath explaining what it means that he's a champion. Again, that word champion means a man between. And so oftentimes the armies would line up and Braveheart style, just, you know, here we go. But sometimes, and this wasn't uncommon, but it wasn't the main way they'd fight, is each side would send a champion, a man between. And these two men between would battle it out, mano y mano, winner take all. And that's what Goliath wants to have happen. So Goliath, this giant, like the giants that have haunted the people of Israel. Goliath, this serpent-like warrior with the armor. Right, the armor was a reminder only the Philistines had the technology to make armor. The Israelites didn't. This is a scary guy, and he calls out, hey, who's going to fight me? But here's what we got to realize. When, when, when he cries out, choose a man, any man, there's only one man that everyone was assuming would step forward. There's only one man. This is the man that was described in 1 Samuel chapter 9 as being head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. The Goliath of Israel was Saul. The Philistines have access to this technology, this armor. Nobody in Israel has access to the technology and the armor except for who? Saul and his son Jonathan. So he's taller, he's got the technological advantage, and he's the one that in chapter 8, the people of Israel said, we want a king like all the other nations. Give us a king so that our king, do you remember what they said? So that our king will go out before us and fight our battles. Now you you see it even in verse 8. Goliath says, am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man. What is happening? Goliath is calling out not just the Israeli army. He's calling out one man. When he he calls this out, every head in the place starts to go, but there's a problem. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So the one person that's supposed to step forward along with everyone else, is just as scared as everyone else. That's introducing Goliath. Here's the second scene. We'll go through this a little quicker. In this corner, David. 
David. And you see, David's quite a bit less impressive than Goliath. David's a shepherd boy. He's the 11th son of a man named Jesse. His older brothers are off at this battle, uh, but he is often with the sheep and taking care of them. And his, son, his uh, dad, Jesse, uh, says, hey, here's what I want you to do. Will you take this bread and these cheeses, and will you go and visit your brothers? And he says in verse 18, see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Bring something to let me know they're okay. Boy, is David going to bring something? So, so you know, go, go see how they're doing. Go, go do this. And it says, uh, okay, David did that. He rose early in the morning. He left the sheep with someone else. He goes, it says in verse 22, he left all the stuff his dad sent him with, to, with the keeper of the baggage. And he ran to the ranks. And verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Now, here's what you need to understand. This is not the second time that Goliath has said this. But what it said in verse 16 was that for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Every morning, every night, day after day, after day, week after week after week. Pick a man, any man. Day after day, week after week, Israel trembles. Forty days is a long time. Do you know what was 40 days ago, just to give you kind of perspective on this? 40 days ago was 4th of July. I feel like a million years ago. <laughs> like, that's a long time, right? Like, so, so this is happening for 40 days, just like the people of Israel wandered for 40 years. Now they're afraid of this giant for 40 days. He says the speech, he's always said the difference we see in verse 23 is that David heard him. So we've met Goliath, we've met David, and then we go to scene three, which I'm titling, y'all just going to stand here? That's uh, scene three. Y'all just going to stand here? It says in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. That includes Saul. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Like, David, check this guy out. This happens every day. Surely he's come up to defy Israel. By the way, that word defy, it's going to show up again and again and again in this passage. It's an important word. It means to mock, to uh, belittle, to put to shame Surely he's come up to mock Israel, to defy Israel, to put Israel to shame, yes. And, and they say to David this, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. In other words, whoever goes up against this guy is going to be totally loaded with cash, is going to get to marry the, the king's daughter, and his whole family is going to live tax-free forever. Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? I, I think this is David's way of going, wait a minute. You, you guys just seem so excited about what the guy's going to win. How come you're all sitting here? And he says this, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy, same word, mock, belittle, shame, that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
Who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Uncircumcised is simply a way of saying this godless Philistine. Circumcision was this sign of the covenant that God had with his people Israel. And it was this way of of demonstrating that they were in relationship and in family covenant commitment with him. And so anyone who, who wasn't in that commitment is described this way, this uncircumcised Philistine defying the armies of the living God. Now, some of you are, are parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and if you are, you know, and even if you're not, if you're ever just around babies, one of the things you realize is that it's really important whatever their first words were, right? You're asking, well, oh, you know, so you're making a call, honey, I think I, think I just heard the first word, right? And wait, wait, don't let them say anything. Let me get there, you know, and you, you want to hear this, right? Like my first word was ball. Um, all four of my kids, what, their first word was dada, at least that's how I remember it. And, and it's a big deal. Like you go, man, what, that was your first word. Oh, that's so, you know, that's so meaningful. That's so cool. Well, we'll get this. When it comes to biblical narrative, the same thing's true. The first words out of important characters' mouths are supposed to tell you something about who they are as a person. Chapter 16, we were introduced to how David looked. We didn't hear a word from him. The beginning of chapter 17, we know what he's doing, but this is the first time he speaks. And what's the first thing he says? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Like so far in this narrative, God's just nowhere. This whole narrative's godless. Nobody cares about God. Nobody's thinking about God. Nobody's trusting in God. Nobody's crying out to God. Nobody's praying to God. God is just kind of not a factor in this thing. And David's first words are to say, hey, doesn't having a living God make a difference? Shouldn't that like factor into the equation? And I just wonder for us, as the people of God, is it factoring into our equation? Or do we get so overwhelmed by the circumstances and so overwhelmed by the data and so overwhelmed by all the things that everyone tells us and so overwhelmed by all the things that we read and that we scroll through and that we see and, and all of that is just this very godless equation. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, says this. He says, the tragedy is that were someone to hear our thoughts and words in our dangers and troubles, they would never guess that we had a living God. If you can't say amen, you got to say ouch. Isn't that true? I mean, so often if you just had a script of the things that we're running through in our head, God's not in there anywhere. No one watching would go, oh, I see where where they get their strength. They'd go, I don't see God anywhere. Well, David sees God and is involved in this and is like, hey, we got to do something about this. And, and then there's this really human thing, and I just, I, I, I want to pause on it because I think it's just in the middle of this story that almost seems larger than life, and it almost seems mythical, and how could this be true? The next little part just to me is like one of these details that makes me go, the Bible's true. Like this stuff must really happen. Because watch this like brotherly argument take place in the next few verses. 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, right? Oldest brother to youngest brother. And he said to him, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption, the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle, right? This is such an older brother move, right? Belittling the little brother. Oh, your little cute sheep. Who's looking after your little cute sheep, you know? And, uh, and then David has such a little brother response. Verse 29, David said, what have I done now? <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that just the youngest brother's 
What, golly, what did I, give me a break. What did I do now? Right, Eliab's basically saying, dude, you're a pain. David's going, oh, brother, give me a break. And that's scene three. Scene four, you realize that David's, hey, shouldn't the living God matter in this equation actually starts to come to shape. And scene four leads us to what I'm calling contrasting confidence. Contrasting confidence. You see, there's a kind of confidence that everyone else in the story is operating with, especially Saul, and that's contrasted with the kind of confidence that David seems to have. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Don't, don't, don't be afraid because of this, this guy. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. In other words, David, you're green. You're inexperienced. You're unpracticed. Listen, David, you shouldn't have much confidence here. This guy's like a decorated war veteran, and you're a shepherd boy with no experience. This isn't going to work. But David said, verse 34, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied, again, there's that word, he's mocked the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul is seeing the situation with only the situation. David is seeing the situation through the lens of having a living God who impacts his daily reality. Now, one thing we didn't mention, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning here, is you know, we talk about the boy shepherd, David. He, he wasn't like a little, little boy, right? He's not old enough to be in this battle you know, as part of the army, but he is old enough to travel miles independently and to be left alone with sheep facing these kinds of things. So he's probably a you know, teenager, maybe a young man. But either way, you see this rationale is, is David's going, hey, the Lord's been with me through all these various things, and the Lord will be with me through this. And in fact, if you actually stop and think about it, you realize some of the, the way that, that David's deducing this. So I was thinking about it, and I'd be curious if we went around and, and you could share, like, who's the scariest person you can imagine fighting from your lifetime? I was thinking about that. Who would be the person that I just would most not want to fight? And I thought of Mike Tyson. Some of you are not old enough to remember Mike Tyson. Um, he was in The Hangover. Maybe you know him that way. Anyway, he was a, he was a fierce boxer. Really fierce. Don't watch The Hangover, um, by the way. Um, but he was a really fierce boxer who, I mean, at the height, part of it was like he was strong and he was quick and he was crazy right? So it was like, you could go to the ring with Mike Tyson. You might not come out with your ear. You know, you might not come out with your life. I mean, he's just terrifying, right? And, and there really is, for, for average, you know, people like us, like one punch of Mike Tyson, you're a goner. But here's the thing. If you gave me the choice, hey, Luke, you're going to have to fight. And, and you get to pick your opponent. You can either fight a lion or a bear or Mike Tyson. I mean, give me those gloves. I'm going in with Mike Tyson. Like, that's not even close. Like, 
Of course I'm going to fight him, not a lion or a bear. Are you crazy? Right? And so, so there's a sense in which what David's saying is like, hey, the Lord was with me in scarier times. Why wouldn't he be with me now? This is not as scary. Well, the contrast continues because what goes on next is that Saul, it says in verse 38, clothed David with his armor. He puts on his helmet and he puts on his armor and he puts on all this stuff and he's lugging around. Because remember, the only person in Israel that has armor is Saul. And he's going, there's no way that you inexperienced guy can fight the experienced guy without some armor because, you know, our confidence comes from our armor. You know, Saul, if your confidence comes from your armor, get your butt out there. What are you doing? But that's, that's where Saul's confidence is. And, and David tries it on, and he's clunking around, and it's not working. It's too heavy. It's too weird. It's too awkward. He doesn't, he's not used to it. He says, he put them off. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. I've been to this brook. In fact, when I went to Israel with our little tour group, I guess the tour guide thought it would be funny if me, he thought I was kind of big. So he made me lay down face down like the Goliath. So there I, we have pictures of me in the river. I didn't bring those pictures. I didn't think you cared about that. Um, and then I brought five, five smooth stones from, from the river, right? Same river where this, you know, happened. And these stones are on my shelf in my house. And I'm sure the Israeli tourism department just hauls in rocks every six months that us idiot, you know, tourists are going to take away. So it's exactly like what David did, you know, but, uh, but you can, you can see that. So, so look, he, he's still using a weapon. He didn't just get one stone. He got five. So he's, he's not like totally unprepared. He's just going like, my confidence is not where your confidence is. And he has the sling. Now, one quick thought on the sling. The sling is not like a Boy Scout sling, like, you know, it's not one of those. Instead, it's, it's like a rope with a little pocket at the end and you put the stone in it and you swing it, swing it, swing it. You can go on YouTube and find shepherds from Afghanistan or wherever using this sling. People have measured how fast experienced people can, can launch a rock and they say it's up to like 150 miles an hour. And so that's what he's got. All right, this brings us to the last scene, the final scene, which we're calling glory to God in the highest and on earth, thud. That's what we're calling this. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. Notice throughout this next few verses, it's going to say five times, the Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine. You're supposed to read it and feel the giant's steps coming. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you came to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. This is a scary moment. Eliab said, you're you're a pain. Saul said, you're green. Goliath says, you're puny. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. David can, David can dish it back, right? Yo mama, Goliath. 
But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Listen, I'm not mad because you offended me. I'm not mad because you are scaring everyone around me. I'm mad because you offended, defied, mocked God. That's my priority, the glory of God. This day, verse 46, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What's motivating David? His glory? No. Oh, man, at the end of this, tax-free forever. No. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. But not just that all the earth would know there's a God. But the, the next part just strikes me. Verse 47. That all this assembly may know. That the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. you know who needs to know that there's more than what you can see? You know who needs to know that? The church. The assembly. The gathering of God's people. Yes, we want all the earth to know, but, but man, we got to know something. And that's what David says. I, I want the people here. They're, they're all, they're just looking at everything you can see, but God doesn't look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. The battle's the Lord's. He'll give you into our hand. And so they come and they run together and David puts his hand in his bag. He slings the stone. It sinks into the giant's forehead. He falls on his face. Verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and, st- and struck the Philistine and killed him. And I, lo- I love this detail the narrator adds. There was no sword in the hand of David. Hey, in case you think you need a sword, in case you think you need armor, no, 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 you just need the Lord. There was no sword in the hand of David. David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. I've tried to imagine what that part would be like, right? Because this sword's like ginormous. It's like super heavy. It's over 100 pounds if you do the math on how much this thing weighs, right? Is he just so filled with adrenaline, he just picks it up and, or is he like pick it up and, you know, like, and the head just rolls off? I mean, I don't know how this works, but, but this is an absolutely amazing thing. And it says in verse 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. (laughs) Hey, dad, you asked for a token. Uh, Here's a head, the biggest head you've ever seen. And then the story finishes with Saul trying to figure out, okay, I know David, but who's his, what family is he part of? They're going to cash in here in a pretty significant way. We look at David and we go, yeah, I want to I fight like David. I want to have courage like David. I want to have grit like David. But I love what Dale Ralph, Ralph Davis says. He says, David will be delivered not because he has true grit, but because he knows the true God. Listen, friends, you got to have grit in life. You're not going to get anywhere if you don't have grit. If you just fold every time anything gets difficult, you're not going to go very far. But if all you have is grit, then all you have is grit. And if you don't have God, by all means, have as much grit as you can have. But David's saved not because of his true grit, but because of his true God. So those are sort of the scenes. Pretty wild story, huh? You learned something. You, man, there's more to that than I realized. What do we take away from it? What do we take away? I've got three key takeaways as I've spent time in this text. The first one is this. Don't be surprised by God belittling enemies. 
Right, over and over, God, defy, 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 mock, mock, belittle, belittle, belittle. And I just want to say to me, and I want to say to you, like, let's stop being surprised by that. The work of the serpent is everywhere. You've got the devil doing his work, telling lies. You've got the world creating systems and structures and cultures and common beliefs about what's normal. That's all goofy. And then you have the flesh, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil, and the flesh that in our own hearts starts to go, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I can't trust God. And all that starts to conspire. And you put all that together, and you fill the world with billions of sinners influenced by this real devil. And you start to go, right? When people go, man, can you believe can you believe what the world is like these days? Yeah. I have a Bible. Of course I believe it. Right? In these last days, people will be lovers of self and lovers of money. and blah, 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 blah. I mean, on and on. And yet we find ourselves so surprised. And I just think this story should tell us, like, well, of course. G- Goliath, I believe he really was a real person that really was part of this real army, but he's also a kind of type, a kind of figure of, of a world in rebellion to God, this serpent-like scary world that talks big but ultimately falls before the living God. Don't be surprised by God blending enemies. The second takeaway is this. We have to look to the ultimate champion. Remember the word champion? What's champion mean? The man between you got this army, you got that army, we need a champion. Well, we have a champion, and David is the people of Israel's champion. He's the man between the armies. He's the one who doesn't seem very impressive. He's the one who seems pretty weak. He's the one who finally will step forward and be the man between to rescue this paralyzed with fear army who can't even lift a finger to defend themselves, and they will enjoy the spoils of victory because of him being the man between. But I want to tell you, this story is not mostly about David. And it's not mostly about how we need to try to be like David. This story is pointing us to an ultimate David, an ultimate champion, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true man between. The man who looks at a group of people paralyzed by Satan's sin and death and steps forward and says, I'm going to step forward on behalf of the living God to save these people before they even lift a finger to do anything for themselves. Listen, David in this story is saying, well, if God saved me from lions and bears, this giant's no problem. And I want to say to us, Jesus has saved us from the scariest things. Jesus has saved us from sin. Jesus has saved us from death. Death is the scariest thing. Right? What's the highest penalty you could get? Death. You hear about the car accident, and you go, is everyone alive? You go, yes, they're alive. Oh, okay. Right? It's the scariest thing. And if Jesus has saved us from the scariest thing, Jesus has saved us from the lions and the bears. And now all we got is Mike Tyson? Right now, I mean, and this, is the, this is what my dad's trying to do. It's to go, all right. If, if I choke on this pill and die, I'm with Jesus. The worst thing that could happen is that I move into the best thing ever. I'll take that pill. If if Jesus has done the biggest thing, he's done the heavy lifting, then we can trust him with the 
smaller stuff. And I realize, I don't want to trivialize it. It doesn't feel small. But I'm saying compared to death, it's smaller. So we look to the ultimate champion, but here's the third takeaway for me is that we need to fight like we're as weak as we truly are. I want to encourage you, fight like you are as weak as you truly are. I told you, this story isn't mostly about how we need to be like David, but it is a little bit. It's not mostly about that, but it is a little bit about that. Because you and I face these scary giants. We face these fears. We face these challenges. How are we going to do it? And the way that I see most of us trying to do it, the way I see most of us, the way that I try to do it, is we put on the Saul's armor of false confidence. And we try to pretend that we're strong. We try to pretend we got it together. Right? And there's a lot of voices that are going to tell us, oh yeah, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Right? And one of the things that I, I hear a lot, and, um, and maybe you have said this, and maybe you think about this, and I, I'm not trying to, I, I understand the intentions with which people say this, but one of the things I hear people say is like, hey, if you, if you want to face your giants, you just got to remember, you are enough. And I know what people are trying to say. But I just want to tell you, no, you're not. You're not. If you were, you wouldn't be so scared. And I just want to tell you, and it's okay. Eliab, you're puny. You're, you're a pest. Saul, you don't have experience. Goliath, I'm going to break you in half. David goes, Okay. Right, he go, no, I'm not. I'm enough. <laughs> Somebody does. He goes, no, I, yeah, I am what I am. I'm going to get my sling. And I'm not enough, but, but God is. And so I just want, I want to free you as you face your fears and you, you beat yourself up and you talk so much bad stuff to yourself about how, like, you're weak. Yes, you are. Rejoice in your weakness. When you're weak, the Bible says, God is strong. When you're weak and you're crying out to him, when you're weak and you're depending on him, then he can fight your battle for you and through you. And this is our choice, isn't it? I mean, either we get to fight with all of our strength or with all of his. And the takeaway for us from this story is I don't want to fight in my strength. I want to fight in his. I'm weak. I have a champion who's strong. And I have a spirit who fills me. And when I'm weak, he's strong. Let's pray.